All right, Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These were set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. All right. How's everybody doing? Good, good. All right. So if I asked everyone here to come up with a list, to come up with a list of things that they think could stifle the growth of a church, what would you come up with? If I asked you to come up with a list of reasons that would uh, hinder the church from growing in a way that would hinder the gospel from going forth, that would stop gospel ministry from expanding beyond where we are now, what kind of reasons would you come up with? You might say something like uh, government or state-sponsored persecution. You know, if you, know, you lived in a place like Afghanistan where by law, by constitution, they are uh, they are only allowed to practice Islam. That would certainly hinder the gospel from going out. Or, you know, maybe that a church just has, has bad theology. They don't know how to rightly handle the word of truth. And so one week they say this thing, and then the next week they say this thing, and they're just kind of contradicting themselves as they go. And so at best they're being unclear and unhelpful, and at worst they're steering people away from the gospel. That would certainly be a hindrance. Or, or maybe it's just the, the sinfulness of a church. It's, you know, these people who claim to follow and be believers in Christ, but when people look at their lives, it, it doesn't line up. There's a disconnect. And so when people, you know, just look at the church from the outside, they think, ah, that's, that gospel can't be real. You could say all of those things, and all of those things would be right. All of those problems or issues would stop the gospel from going forward. But how many of us, for one of the reasons that we would give from the stopping the gospel going forward would be maybe that church has poor administration. Maybe that church doesn't have good structures and systems and philosophies of ministry and ways to approach doing ministry. I wonder how many of us you know, would think that that is a legitimate thing that can stop the gospel from going forward. So far in the book of Acts, we have come across several summary statements or progress reports about how the early church is growing. At the end of Acts 2, after Pentecost, we heard that those who received the word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So the church grew by 3,000 people in one day. 
Last week, we looked at the early church as they were fearing the Lord, and we read that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then our passage for today, verse 1, it starts out with another one of these summary statements, these progress reports, and it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. And so the word is going out. The gospel is going out. People are coming to faith. They are believing in Christ and the church is growing. And what we're going to see is that it was an administration problem that threatened to bring all of this gospel-centered work grinding to a halt. So so the church had experienced some of those uh, reasons that we might first think, you know, they had you know, experienced outside persecution. Peter and John had been thrown in jail. They, they had experienced that internal hypocrisy and sin with Ananias and Sapphira. But when those things didn't work, Satan changed his tactics. He said, I'm going to look at something that people don't usually think about, and I'm just going to try and slip in the back door and just tear apart some of the foundational pieces of this church, and eventually they're not even going to know what hit them. And so the problem here was an administrative problem. We see it in the rest of verse 1. As the church was growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is true for any institution that grows. Any institution that grows will grow in both diversity and in complexity. And so we know that the early church grew in diversity. There were Hellenists coming in, and they were arguing with the Hebrews. So the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, They had probably lived outside of Jerusalem. They had been spread out of Jerusalem, kind of amongst the areas out there, so they spoke a different language. And now that these women didn't have anybody to care for them, now that they were widows, they were moving back to Jerusalem so they could be near the the center, so they could be near the hub, so that the church could take care of them. And we know that there were the Hebrews. These were the Aramaic-speaking Jews. So these were the Jerusalem natives. These were the the believers, the widows that lived in Jerusalem. This was their home. And and the problem was that as the, the Hellenists, these widows were moving in, that there just wasn't enough food to go around or there wasn't good enough administration to make sure that everyone was taken care of. It grew in diversity and in complexity. There were more people, therefore there were more problems. And so what used to work for a smaller, more culturally monolithic group no longer works for a bigger and more diverse group. And, and if you think about it, this is a huge danger for the church. Just think of kind of all the ingredients that are stirring in the pot. You have racial tensions. There is an ethnic divide going on of, you know, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They are at each other's throats. A racial tension is high. There are cultural differences. There are language barriers. They can't understand one another. There's miscommunication and people ignoring and speaking past one another. There's a humanitarian crisis going on. This is beyond just being hangry. Like, there are people in in threat of actually dying from hunger. And and so, this, I mean, you can see the church split coming. It it is inevitable. If things continue the way that they are going, just all the infighting is going to tear the church apart. 
So this passage in this sermon is about putting healthy church systems into place. This is about gospel administration, gospel structures, ordering the church the way that God has designed it to so that the gospel can go out. Now, now I know, and I'm one of them, that when, he, that when we hear the words administration, organization, structure, policies, like I, I can just see the glaze coming over everybody's eyes and people just, just checking out, and, and I get it. But before you get a head start on your Sunday afternoon nap, then just, just consider this. You remember what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16? Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus cried and said, yes, that's right. And on this rock, I will build my church. On the rock, on the confession that Christ is Lord, and on the confessor, the person that Christ is Lord, who confesses that, on that rock, I will build my church. And so Jesus himself sees a direct connection between believing in Jesus and belonging to Jesus and being committed to the church. Paul is going to say in Ephesians 3 verse 10 that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. And so the church is God's vehicle. It is God's instrument, his tool for getting the gospel out to the nations. And so if you are committed to the gospel, if you are committed to Christ, then by definition, you are committed to building a healthy church. I like to think about the relationship between the gospel and the church this way. I like to think of it like an engagement ring. And so the diamond is the most important part. That's the beautiful, that's the valuable, that is the attractive part. That's the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. That's what we focus on. And the church is the actual ring. It's the prongs, it's the settings. It is what holds up. It is what displays, protects, and portrays the gospel. Or you can think about it like, like a sailboat. You know, the gospel, as the spirit is the wind, it comes and it goes. And the church is the actual boat with the mast and the sails. And so you have to get all the settings, you have to get the sails set up right so that the gospel can take you in the right direction. And so talking about, you know, church systems and structures might not sound like the most interesting thing in the world, but if you have a healthy church with healthy church systems, that actually ensures that you are going to be able to do greater gospel ministry. If we are able, we're going to be able to do more gospel work, better gospel work, and gospel work for a longer period of time if we get our understanding and our practice of the church right. All right, so where do we begin? How should the church be structured? What should the church give her time to? Who should do what? We get that answer in verse 2. We read that the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So when I read that, that sounds like a defense. It sounds like somebody came to the apostles and said, all right, apostles, the church is growing rapidly. We are having more and more needs. So what you need to do is you need to stop preaching so that you can serve tables, so that you can handle some of these physical, logistical, uh, administrative 
needs? And the apostles say, no. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And so what we see here is that the apostles are laying down a principle for all of, all of churches to follow. They are laying down the principle called the primacy of preaching. That first and foremost, a church should be committed to the Word of God and committed to the preaching of the Word of God so that people can come to hear the gospel and so that people can grow in the gospel. That This commitment to the Word is all through this passage. Verse 2, we will not give up the preaching of the Word of God. Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Down in verse 7, and the Word of God continued to increase. If there is one thing that is going to hold this church together when everything is threatening to split it apart, it is a commitment to the Word of God. And so, yes, taking care of widows is important, and we are going to get to that. The apostles are going to take care of that, but they are not going to do it at the expense of the Word of God or preaching. And it's not just the apostles, it's not just this passage that kind of holds up and highlights the primacy of preaching. We see this throughout the entire Bible. At the very beginning, Genesis 1, how did God create everything? He spoke it into existence. Everything that exists came into being by the spoken word of God. Nine times throughout the creation account, and God said, and God said, from the beginning, God's word was primary. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham and he gave him all of these promises, how did he give him those promises? By his word. In, in, in Exodus 20, when Israel uh, was before Mount Sinai, how did God form them into an official people? Through the Ten Commandments, through the law, through the giving of God's word. As Israel was about to enter into the promised land, what did God remind them? It says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Pretty much all the minor prophets, how do they begin? And the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And the word of the Lord came to Amos. The word of the Lord came to Joel. That, that phrase, the word of the Lord, occurs over 3,800 times in the Old Testament alone. And that, that emphasis, that focus on the, the primacy of the word of God, that, that is just continued as we move into the New Testament. When you get to John 1, you know, as the Apostle John is uh, writing his gospel account of Genesis, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he pray for us? He prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. How was the church born? We've seen this in Acts chapter 2. We saw that the church was formed and gathered by Peter preaching from the Old Testament. In Acts 20, Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus, and he says a really interesting thing. He says, before I go, I need you to know that I am innocent of the blood of all. 
Basically, I'm wiping my hands. I have done my job. I can sleep easy at night knowing that I have done one thing. The one thing that he said he did, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of the word of God. Well, what did Paul tell young Timothy, his young protege in the faith, this up-and-coming pastor? In, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here it is, preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so first and second Timothy, Paul's instructions to his young protege, they are full of instructions for how Timothy should grow in the faith and lead the church. But the most important thing that Paul ever told Timothy, above all else, let everything fall to the wayside, but the one thing that you must commit yourself to do is to preach the word. There's an old ministry saying that probably guides my philosophy of ministry more than anything else, and it says, as goes the preaching, so goes the church. As goes the preaching, so goes the church. That God has designed his church and the, the ministry of the word and the pulpit ministry as the steering wheel of the church. If it is handled well, the church will go in the right direction. But if you take your hands off the preaching of the word, if you neglect it, then eventually that church is going to crash. So how does this relate to RP? How do we begin to implement some of these uh, structures and gospel systems into our church? Uh, part of what I'm doing here is I am teaching you what my job description is. I am teaching the congregation how they can judge and evaluate whether their pastor is being faithful to what God and Scripture has called him to do. And because of the primacy of preaching that we see throughout the Bible, that means that the majority of my time and the majority of Mark's time, the majority of anyone who preaches, the majority of their time should be given to studying, to reading, to writing, and preparing to preach on Sunday. Because here's the thing. Anyone can tell when you are getting a half-baked sermon. You can tell when you are getting a sermon that was popped in the microwave on a Saturday night. I mean, once you have heard faithful gospel preaching, once you've gotten the ear for it, you can spot a rush sermon and a rush preacher within five minutes that he starts talking. And what we see is that sermon prep takes time. I know that from experience. Anyone who's ever preached knows that from experience. And, and we see it here in the Apostles. They said, we cannot be as faithful as we need to be to the Word if we are also distracted by these other administrative duties. Preaching is crockpot kind of work. And some things from Scripture you are just not going to see and realize and be able to communicate until you've been, it's been keeping you up at night and you can't sleep because you've just been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with it over and over. So just part of the preaching tree that I came from, some of my, my mentors and fathers in the faith, uh, the rule that they taught me is that for every minute that you preach, you need to put in an hour of prep. For every minute that you preach in the sanctuary, there needs to be an hour of study behind it. 
And so the primacy of preaching drives how Mark and I spend our time throughout the week. And it also shapes how we spend our time here on Sunday. Have you ever asked, why do we do what we do on a Sunday? You know, why, why do we sing so much? Why do we pray? Why do we take communion? You know, we don't just do it to, to do it. There are you know, strong biblical reasons why we do all of those things. But why do we spend so much time devoted to the Word of God? You know, sometimes up to 40 minutes. That is a very long time. The reason is because Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ that he has given to us in his scriptures. And because we, again, we want to see people come to the gospel and because we want to see people grow in the gospel above all else, we are committed to the word. Now, now as a clarification, just because we believe in the primacy of preaching does not mean that other aspects of pastoral ministry are unimportant. Verse 4, the apostles will devote themselves to prayer. The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are full of instructions for how pastors should spend their time and organize the church. We should be evangelists and disciple makers and leaders. We should care for the flock, protect the flock, get to know the flock. We need to know the people and what is going on in their lives so that we can shepherd them. So just because we believe in the primacy of preaching, it doesn't mean Monday through Saturday we just scurry off to the ivory tower to not be bothered by these lesser little people problems. Okay? A shepherd that does not smell like sheep is no shepherd at all. I think Jesus, obviously, is, is the model of how ministry should be done. When you read the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus started his ministry off with a bang. He was curing people. He was freeing the oppressed. He was gathering a crowd. And one morning, he went off to pray. And the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. We need to go back so you can heal and so that you can do miracles. And he said to them, we have to go. Let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. The exact same thing happens in Luke's gospel. Jesus is surrounded by crowds. The disciples are trying to get him to stick around. But Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So yes, Jesus was sent to heal. He was sent to perform miracles. He was sent to do all of these things. But Jesus primarily considered himself a preacher. He was committed to the word of God. And Jesus has set up the church and set up the leaders in the church to operate the same way. Yes, pastors should smell like sheep, but they should never neglect the ministry of the Word. So that's how I apply this. What about you? How can a lay person apply this? Well, one, I'm asking you to hold us accountable to this commitment to the Word of God. But, but say you ever end up moving, you know, job takes you somewhere else, or you move away to be closer to family, whatever it is, when you go to look for another church home, the most important thing that you should look for in that church is that church's commitment to faithfully preaching the word. And yes, 
kids ministry and worship ministry and, and their outreach ministry and, and their small group structure. All of that is important. But, but even if a church gets an A plus in all of those other things but neglects the preaching of the word, eventually your soul is going to start to get hungry for what it was designed to feed on. Eventually, if your soul is not being fed with faithful gospel preaching, it is going to begin to shrivel. And it is going to begin to die. And all those other things, as as well run and as great as they are, they are not going to matter. Because God has organized his church and he has organized our hearts to feast on his word. So, So no matter where you go, go where the preaching is strong. So in order to address this administration issue, the apostles will devote themselves to word and to prayer. If they're going to do this, they knew that they had to delegate. So we read in verses 2 and 3, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So that word there used for serving tables is diakonia. That's where we will eventually get our word deacon. Deacon is someone who uh, just serves the church in a very uh, selfless and sacrificial way. And so what I think we are seeing here with the apostles committing themselves to teaching and to shepherding and then charging other people in the flock to take up some of the more uh, administrative, physical, logistical needs, I think we are seeing the creation of two offices in the church. The apostles are implementing gospel systems and gospel structures, and we are seeing the creation and the installation of elders and deacons. So the apostles installed themselves as elders. Eventually in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1-7, Paul is going to give the qualifications for elders. Last year, we did a series on the church, and Mark Oshman actually preached on those 14 characteristics, those 14 qualifications. It's actually one of the best sermons I've heard him preach. I would highly recommend uh, you go back and listen to it. And and of the 14 qualifications of an elder, 13 of them are character-based. They're all to do with that man's character. He's meant to be above reproach, Respectable, hospitable, not a lover of money. Stuff like that. And the one skill or ability or competency that an elder must have is they must be able to teach. That is the unique criteria that defines an elder. They can teach. And so here in Acts 6, with the apostles devoting themselves to teaching and preaching, I think we see them fulfilling the role of elder. And as we move past the apostles to see how they are delegating to the word to the congregation, that word diakonia, the deacon, it pops up again. And, and in 1 Timothy 3, after Paul gives the qualifications for elders, he then gives the qualifications for deacons. And, and, and they are very, very similar lists. They are almost identical. You know, the, the same words aren't used, but more or less the exact same Topics and areas and character competencies are covered. And, and deacons should be dignified, not double-tongued, not greedy for dishonest gains, sober-minded, faithful in all things. The, the one thing that is not required of deacons is being 
able to teach. So elders are primarily devoted to teaching and shepherding. Deacons are to take care of the administrative, logistical, physical needs of the church. So those are the two offices that God has given his church. That is how the church is meant to operate, with elders and deacons. So what does this mean for us? Uh, Redemption Parker is not growing at the same rate as the early church. We do not have thousands of people bursting down the doors trying to get in here. Redemption Parker started in Mark and Jen's living room, had maybe 10 people, and Mark was able to pastor and shepherd and, and, and lead those people well. But, but eventually it grew, and they ended up here at the Pace Center, but down at the end of the hall in the garage room. And by that time, Brad Dugas showed up and started doing the Brad Dugas kind of things that make you want to be Brad Dugas when you grow up. And so just together, Mark and Brad were able to, to shepherd and to, and to lead the church. And the church has continued to grow. And so obviously now we are here in this room and we are at two services and they, they've added me on and I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm trying to keep up with Mark and Brad. And, and as the leaders of the church, we repeatedly and constantly want to lay the church at God's feet and say, do what you will. This is your church. But... If the trends continue, then Redemption Parker is going to continue to grow. And like any institution that grows, it is going to grow in diversity and in complexity. So I think that God, in his providence, has led us to this passage at this point in the life of our church. I think we are reaching the point of diversity and complexity where we need to start delegating more. I think, you know, obviously Mark and, uh, and I handle most of the preaching. Uh, we try and get Brad up here preaching more. Um, he's obviously capable and effective at it. I've heard him preach before. That's just not really uh, his favorite thing to do. But, uh, you know, I think the elders can handle the preaching load. But I, I'm sure you have been able to see this, that there are administrative and logistic areas of weakness and need that we have in our church. You know, Amy Chumrau does an excellent job in uh, organizing our kids' ministry and finding volunteers, and I'm sure she would love to have too many people texting her saying, how can I serve? Or, you know, we, we rent this space, and so every morning or every Sunday morning before the, the service, it, it is a madhouse. It is a mad dash chaos trying to get everything set up and ready. Same thing for when the service is over. We have to be out by a certain time, and so we are just scrambling, trying to get everything put up. You know, it's gotten to the point where, um, you know, as, as much as I love welcoming and being the smiling face out in front, uh, I, I think we need people who say, this is my church, and I want to help other people feel welcomed. If you're a part of one of our gospel communities. I think every single one of them is absolutely bursting at the seams, and so we need gospel community leaders. And that role is going to take a little more uh, training and background because it is somewhat of a teaching role, so I think you would need to be a member of the church to serve uh, in that role. But, but the point is there are a million areas of need here in the church. And so something that I have been praying for is that I have been praying for God to stir a holy ambition in the life of Redemption Parker. A holy ambition, a spark in you to see 
this is how God has designed his church, and this is how he has gifted and equipped me. How can I serve? So a pastor that I've learned a lot from, something that he'll ask uh, some of the members of his congregation, he'll go up to a man and say, if you're still here in 10 years, what's to stop you from being an elder? If you're still here in 10 years, why will you not be an elder? And it's, it's just a really good system clearing question because you have the qualifications for an elder held up and then that man has to look at his life and say, where am I not matching up? What can I work on? And it, it, it kind of sparks a holy ambition to say, this is what God has called me to do. I'm going to begin working on my character so that I can fulfill this role. Same thing with deacons. Um, I, I do think that the role of elder is reserved for men, but I think there is a lot of strong biblical evidence for deacons and deaconesses. And so to both the men and the women in the room, I am praying that God would spark a holy ambition in all of us to say, where can I serve? Do I meet these qualifications? How can I serve the Lord and his church? And, and I know a lot of times when you know, a need is kind of put before people, and especially when it's done in such an official way of, you know, elder and deacon, people think, okay, well, I, I don't have that title. I don't have that official responsibility and that recognition. You know, you know can I fulfill these things? Let me ask you a question. Uh, raise your hand if you can say yes. How many of you know Scott Evans? Okay, wow, two. Um, Scott Evans, uh, about a third of our Sundays, he almost single-handedly sets up the entire worship set. He is the one pulling things out of cars, setting up mics, running sound. He, there's just a, uh, he is uncomfortable if he is not serving in some way. And I think the fact that none of us know him, we have no idea who Scott Evans is. And, and I love that about Scott. He's not looking for recognition. He's not looking for the title. He's just faithfully doing the work. He sees a need and he fills it. And so gospel servants don't care about the title. They think, how can I best serve? And so that's why I pray that it's a holy ambition. Not one that says, I want to be recognized in some sort of way, but I just want to lay my life as a blank check down before the Lord and say, do what you will. So for the sake of others, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of seeing a healthier church, so that more gospel work can be done, that better gospel work can be done, and so that more gospel work can be done better for a longer period of time, I pray the Lord would spark a holy ambition in all of us and how we can best serve the church. Towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gift that it is to gather together, um, to focus our minds and our hearts and our lives on you. Lord, I ask that by your spirit you would um, spark that holy ambition in all of us. Would you create that desire to see gospel work done in a healthy way? Would you raise up leaders in your church? Would you make us a healthier church for the sake of your name being made known? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.